fiction, nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel, Love Marriage. This week's episode hits close to home. According to the New York Times, eight states have voted to severely limit abortion this year. Alabama has voted to ban abortion in nearly all cases, even those involving rape and incest. Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Ohio have voted to ban abortion after six weeks past the mother's last period. My own home state, Missouri, has voted to ban abortion eight weeks after that marker, which is terrible. Arkansas and Utah have voted to ban abortion after 18 weeks. The standard for fetal viability established by Roe v. Wade is 24 weeks since the mother's last period. So I can't help but be reminded with that I once made a pitch to call this show the 1984 cast. <laughs> I still think it would have been good. As someone with a uterus who likes to make her own decisions, this is all terrifying. I agree. So today we're joined by two terrific writers writing about the war on women and on their reproductive rights. First, we're joined by Anjali Njeti, uh, an Atlanta-based writer and teacher. Electric Literature recently named her one of nine essayists of color you should know about. Her work has appeared in Newsday, The Nation, Guernica, The Paris Review, Al Jazeera, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. She's the recipient of the inaugural Fourth Estate Fellowship from the Sundress Academy of the Arts and the 2018 South Asian Journalist Award for Outstanding Story on Any Subject. Her collection of essays about identity is forthcoming from the University of Georgia Press, and she is part of the mem- uh, she is the membership VP of the National Book Critics Circle. Anjali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wit. I'm so excited to be here. And we're also joined by Lacey Johnson. Lacey is a Houston-based professor, curator, activist, and author of The Reckonings, which was named a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist in criticism, and one of the best books of 2018 by The Boston Globe, Electric Literature, Autostraddle, Book Riot, and Refinery29. She's also author of The Other Side, which was also named a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection for 2014, one of the best books of 2014 by Kirkus, Library Journal, and the Houston Chronicle. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The LA Times, Tin House, Guernica, and elsewhere. She teaches creative nonfiction at Rice University. Lacey, welcome to the show. Thank you both so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. Well, we're pleased to have you. Uh, Anjali, you're, you're in Atlanta. You're just yes. short, looked on the map. It's a short drive west on I-20 from, to the Alabama border from Atlanta. Do you have any sense of what's going on in that state? And, and secondly, you recently wrote a piece for Dame titled, Governor Kemp is Turning Georgia into Gilead, a very unambiguous title, in which you talk about the fetal heartbeat bill that Kemp recently signed in Georgia. Can you talk to us about the status of abortion rights in your home state as well? Absolutely. Um, Boy, it's been a really rough two and a half weeks, if you've heard. Um, So at the beginning of May, um, Governor Brian Kemp did, in fact, sign House Bill 481 into law, which is the, quote, heartbeat bill, which means that um, people who are pregnant at about the six week mark, um, if there is a fetal heartbeat showing on the ultrasound, can no longer have an abortion. Um, There are a few ridiculous exceptions to the rule, but it is pretty close to an outright ban. Um, So that is the law. And in Alabama, um, Governor Kay Ivey um, very recently signed um, their abortion ban, which is an even stricter law, the strictest in the country right now, which bans virtually all abortions, um, including in a case of rape or incest. 
And the only exceptions to that law is if the mother's life is at stake or the fetus has a condition where they will not be able to live outside of the womb. Um, I think one of the most important things to know about these laws is that um, they have not gone into effect yet. Um, abortion is legal in both Alabama and Georgia. The Georgia law is not slated to take effect until January, and the Alabama law is not slated to take effect until November. However, um, there are lawsuits being filed that are going to delay that, likely significantly, possibly forever. Um, in fact, um, the ACLU of Alabama and Planned Parenthood filed the lawsuit in Alabama first thing this morning. But I think what's um, what's also important to talk about is that um, these states already um, do a lot to restrict abortions um, in Georgia, even before these laws. Right. Um, there are only a handful of clinics in, in the entire state of Alabama, um, somewhere like three to five clinics. And in Georgia, there are only about 10. Um, and the clinics in both of these states are concentrated in the larger cities. Um, well, there's only that, one in Missouri, as we're going to talk about in a minute. Right, That's my absolutely. State. Um, so what this means is that abortion has essentially been pretty harshly restricted anyways in these states. Um, and given that in both Alabama and Georgia, you have to make two appointments to get an abortion. You first have to get there for your consultation and then go back to get an abortion 24 hours later. Um, it means that, that people have always been struggling to get abortions in these states and that the vast majority of people in counties in Georgia and Alabama don't have uh, an abortion provider. And Lacey, you're in Texas, and most people think of it as a conservative stronghold, at least where I live, we talk about it that way. But it's not one of the states really dominating the conversation here. What's the availability of abortion in Texas, practically speaking? Are legislators cooking up plans we should be on the lookout for? Well, I think a lot. one of the reasons that Texas is not at the forefront of the debate right now, like this week or last week, is because a lot of the abortion restrictions in Texas have already taken place and were um, fought over several years ago. Um, there was a bill in 2013, HB5, um, which was made famous outside of Texas because it, that was the bill that Wendy Davis filibustered um, in her pink sneakers. And oh, that bill, I that. Um, yeah. yeah. And that bill uh, banned all abortions after 20 weeks and required that doctors performing abortions have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital and mandated that all abortion clinics meet the standards of hospitals or similar grade surgical centers. Um, and that, and there was another bill around that time, I think it was HB2, that similarly restricted abortion. Um, but the HB5 in particular was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2016. Um, and so between that bill, HB5 and HB2, half of the state's abortion clinics have already closed now. Um, so before HB5, I think Texas had 42 clinics. And now I think we're operating with 21, which sounds like a lot. But let's remember that Texas is the same size as France. And uh, most of those 21 clinics are in major metropolitan um, areas like Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, and El Paso. Um, but apparently, like restricting it this much so that it's almost outlawed already isn't good enough for our state legislature. 
um, because there was a bill that passed um, just last week in the state. Um, it was SB 22, which further defunded um, Planned Parenthood. And, and of course, tax dollars already don't go to support abortion. Um, but this bill eliminated funding for the only services at Planned Parenthood that tax dollar or taxpayer dollars do support, which were cancer screenings, uh, HIV testing, sex education, uh, teen pregnancy prevention programs, Zika prevention um, kits, and STD treatments. Um, and that defunding of, of those programs, of those um, reproductive health care programs, will kill women. I mean, women will certainly die over this. And um, I don't know, I feel like on the ground here, it definitely seems like that is in some ways the goal, because another bill was introduced, um, this most recent legislative session in Texas that made abortion, which that bill labeled a homicide, um, punishable by the death penalty. Oh, wow. um, so anyone who sought, the women who sought abortions could be subject to the death penalty. I mean, it certainly seems to me like, yeah, hurting women, killing women is the goal. And Wade and Lacey, you both grew up in Missouri. How does it compare in terms of this national national conversation? How have you seen things change over the years? Well, I mean, there's a Planned Parenthood clinic that is like eight blocks from where I live and has been there my whole entire life. I mean, at least um, as long as I can remember. I know that in the 80s, you know, I was asking around, I talked to some people on the Planned Parenthood board around here last night. It, it offered abortions, but it doesn't anymore. Um, and there's a clinic, also a Planned Parenthood clinic in Columbia, that doesn't offer abortions. There really only is one clinic in, in St. Louis now. And that largely has to do with the laws that are designed to um, make it harder and harder to offer abortions at Planned Parenthood clinics, you know, saying that you have to have admitting privileges at another hospital, you know, waiting periods, you have to have certain medical licensing, certain hallway width, all those sorts of bills have been the thing that have made it harder and harder for these clinics to uh, offer abortions. Although the interesting and sort of somewhat ironic fact is that um, in Overland Park, Kansas, which is the conservative part of the city, really, basically, um, for reasons that I've written about, um, has an abortion clinic. Uh, uh, so just across the state line, there is a available abortion, but it's, it's in Kansas. Yeah, and I haven't lived in Missouri for quite a few years, but I don't remember... Um, you know, growing up there in the 80s and 90s, I don't remember abortion being particularly more available, you know, than it is now. It's, you know, I mean, Missouri is a primarily rural place. And even then, um, abortion clinics were primarily, um, you know, centralized to the metropolitan areas, to St. Louis. Um, and I guess maybe the one in Columbia was open at that time. But I had a friend in college who had to get an who, who chose to get an abortion and went to um, to St. Louis to do that. The one in it, Columbia. She didn't have an option to do it in Columbia. Did you grow up near Columbia, or what part of the state were you? I went to school and I went to school in Columbia. Okay, so you went to MU, but did you grow I up did. in uh, like? Is it Jeff City? Sugi was telling me. No, I grew up in Macon, Missouri. Oh, okay, which I know where Macon our, is. Oh, you do? Yeah. yeah. Well, tell it. Tell everyone else anyway. Oh, yeah. So um, so uh, Macon is an hour north of Columbia. You know, Columbia is halfway between St. Louis and Kansas City on I-70, yeah. um, which is the interstate. And, and Macon, Missouri was an hour north of Columbia. Um, you know, so it was two and a half hours from where 
from Macon to either St. Louis or Kansas City, which was where abortion providers were located. This divide between urban and rural is also what's going on in Minnesota. Um, And I was talking to a friend yesterday who has worked in reproductive rights and who um, was telling me about access here. And we only have four clinics in Minnesota, three in the Twin Cities and one in Duluth. And Duluth is about a two hour drive north of Minneapolis. And so if you're hundreds of miles away from the cities, which like many people are, and say it's January or February, and you live in Minnesota, that's a very unpleasant drive. Um, you know, and the only clinic in all of North Dakota is in Fargo. So driving to Fargo sometimes makes um, more sense. So this pal was telling me that um, in some parts of Minnesota, like code for going to get an abortion is going to Fargo. Um, You know, you better quote unquote, you better keep your legs shut because I don't want to have to take you to Fargo. Um, There's a state mandated 24 hour delay between talking to a physician and getting an abortion. And you have to read a state scripted statement to the patient. Um, You can only get an abortion from a physician, including medication abortion, um, and no hospitals in the state, what you and I were talking about this yesterday, no hospitals in the state provide elective abortion care, including the largest public hospital in the state and the one that is the de facto teaching hospital for the U of Minnesota. So if you're a medical student and you want to learn about abortion, you have to find out how to do it on your own and use elective hours and arrange your own experience. Um, minors have to notify biological parents, um, which is really interesting in like an era of say IVF or donor sperm, um, someone whose parents might be incapacitated, someone whose parents, someone who might've been adopted, you have to produce a notarized statement. So just the hurdles are really high. Um, and clinics have to document that they've met all of these requirements. So the administrative burden is really high as well. And so there's, um, a bill that I think is scheduled to be discussed. And I was reading this last night and, and was peeved because it kept referring to the female and it's a, a 20 week suggested abortion, um, ban and, um, also requires the patient to be counseled such that, um, they would be, um, offered, you know, alternatives to abortion in, in a mandatory way. They, they would have to be offered um, information about alternatives to abortion. I'm struck as I listen to all of these conversations about our different states, how these tactics seem really similar to actually voter suppression, like oh, the yeah. administrative burden, um, like the urban and rural, like, oh, you're so far away from your polling place, right? I mean, it's the same thing and it affects the same set of people, uh, which is so interesting. That hadn't occurred to me Um until Anjali and Lacey, you guys were talking about that ur- urban and rural divide. But it seems crucial to understand that so much of the stuff disproportionately affects women of color and people who are working class or on the lower end of the income scale. And it seems to me like so many people talk about abortion in the same way that they talk, you know, condescendingly about welfare or affirmative action, kind of how dare you ask for a handout when you're only getting what you've quote unquote earned. But there's such a clear relationship between this kind of legislation and race and class. And Anjali, in the Dame article we mentioned earlier, you draw a direct connection between voter suppression efforts um, that helped Kemp defeat Stacey Abrams and the state's attitude towards women health and particularly the health of black women. Could you read a section from that article for us? I would be happy to. Um, as Whit mentioned, this is called Governor Brian Kemp is Turning Georgia into Gilead. And it was actually published right before he signed both House Bill 316 into law, which is the law that allows the state to purchase um, barcode ballot marking devices, um, a very hackable and inauditable election system to replace our older 
hackable and inauditable election system. And it was the article was also written right before he passed House Bill 481, which was um, Georgia's heartbeat bill. Um, but we pretty much knew at this point um, that these bills were both going to become law. In the years leading up to the midterm election, leader Stacey Abrams, through her organization New Voter Project, registered some 200,000 new voters, many of them minorities. Kemp did everything in his power to beat back this perceived threat. He unjustifiably purged 340,000 voters from the rolls, claiming these voters moved out of state when they hadn't, failed to mail out absentee ballots to voters who requested them, and rejected hundreds of minority absentee ballots due to Georgia's exact match law. Voters in precincts with a large minority community waited for hours to cast their ballots on election day, while hundreds of voting computers sat idle in storage. While Atlanta has always been a reliable blue epicenter for the state, in 2018, its greater suburbs experienced what's been called a blue tsunami. Black, indigenous, and other women of color deserve a significant amount of the credit for this. Some 97% of black women and 92% of non-white women voted for Stacey Abrams. Unfortunately, these numbers were no match for Kemp's severe suppression tactics, which led to an easy majority in both the state house and state Senate. Given the state's rapidly changing demographics, the days of a Republican controlled legislature may be numbered. Georgia is now 45% minority and only 55% white. It resembles California and New York much more closely than its neighbors, Alabama and South Carolina. Enter House Bill 316, the Georgia GOP's newest last-ditch effort to suppress voters by purchasing barcode ballot-marking devices where votes can be manipulated without voters knowing it. Not even an announcement of the House Oversight Committee's launch into an investigation of the significant barriers voters faced in last year's election has slowed the Georgia GOP down in their mission to spend over $150 million taxpayer dollars on these hackable devices. This legislative nightmare continues with House Bill 481, the heartbeat bill, which has passed both chambers of of the General Assembly and has now joined House Bill 316 on Kemp's desk. He has said he will sign both. It bans abortion when an ultrasound can detect a heartbeat at approximately six weeks, a time when many women don't even know they're pregnant. Much of Georgia already lacks reproductive health care. Half of the state's 159 counties have no OBGYNs. In eight rural counties of South Georgia, there are only two OBGYNs. Black women who face the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation, a staggering 43.5 deaths per 100,000 live births, compared to 12.7 deaths for white women, have an even higher maternal mortality rate in Georgia, where 66.6 black women die per 100,000 live births. Instead of supporting legislation to improve black women's postnatal health, the Georgia GOP has sought to strip all women of the rights to make decisions about their reproductive health. One of the very few and ludicrous exceptions to House Bill 481 is for sexual assault survivors who file a police report. Such an exception can only have been authored by a legislator who has no concept of the effects of trauma from sexual violence or the justice system. So few rapists are ever prosecuted and even fewer are convicted. Georgia Republican lawmakers do not view women as autonomous individuals capable of making their own decisions. They do not believe in the science of reproduction and pregnancy. They do not believe health care providers. If this bill becomes law, the Georgia GOP will be responsible for endangering women, especially poor women, who will seek out unsafe abortions to end a pregnancy. 
A vote is a voice and to silence a voice intentionally with the passage of HB 316 in a state with a history of minority voter suppression undermines and dishonors the activists who fought and died for the right to vote. And to pass HB 481, a bill where women's wombs belong to the government, where decisions about their bodies will be made primarily by white male legislatures who have never experienced a pregnancy is beyond unconscionable, it is depraved. What we have in a state more than willing what we have is a state more than willing for children to be born and spend the rest of the time making sure those lives never receive recognition, said Georgia activist Stacey Hopkins. How many black children will be born only to face voter suppression that says plainly and unequivocally that while your birth matters, your life doesn't count at all in the voting booth or inside your own womb? Thank you very much. Um, I was so struck by the numbers you cite there that Georgia is 45% minority and 55% white. That seems like a fairly optimistic mix to me as a fan of diversity. Uh, nationally, Gallup says that, there, that about 50% of Americans say that abortion should be, quote, legal on, only under certain circumstances, and that 29% say that abortion should be, quote, legal under any circumstance. Only 18% of respondents say that abortion should be, quote, illegal in all circumstances. This is a 2018 poll. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested to know what everybody thinks about the possibility that these laws which may or may not end up being struck down by the courts, might end up helping Democrats in 2020? You know, I have, I, I honestly have a hard time thinking long game about whether or not this will favor Democrats. Right. Because, you know, that women's lives are on the line right now. Right. You know, I mean, if these laws are going, um, you know, into effect in November or January, that's still a really long time. I mean, a child can be gestated, right, and 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 born between that time and when the next, um, you, you know, the next group of legislators and and executives take office. Right. Um, and so this is an urgent and real thing. It's not a talking point or a soundbite or a polling metric. This is life or death. And um, you know, it is 2019 right now. It is not 2020. We're not electing a new uh, new people tomorrow. It's, you know, that's next year. And, you know, I, I will say, though, that I'm especially impatient with candidates who are uninformed about that. Mm. Um, you know, I think, for example, of someone like Bernie Sanders, who is so uninformed about abortion that he ends up repeating back false information um, when, you know, people ask him questions such as about, you know, partial birth abortions. You know, he he takes that as a given that these things are common occurrences rather than, you know, something that almost never happens. You know, I have a question talking about this rural and urban divide, which we, which Suki brought up. I want to know why is it that only clinics are able to offer be abortion providers or only do that. In other words, there are many hospitals here in Kansas City. Like I was born at St. Luke's Hospital. It's a very wealthy hospital in the middle of the city that has a ton of donors who are from a blue part of the city. And I'm sure that's true in Atlanta that there are hospitals, you know, that Atlanta is largely democratic. Why do those hospitals not offer these services? Why is it only up to Planned Parenthood clinics? Um, I I mean, some of them do offer the services. Okay. I mean, the issue, yeah, they do. But I mean, the the issue becomes um, whether or not services at a hospital, especially if you don't have decent insurance, are accessible to you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's the primary issue. Well, I'd be curious because in Kansas City, my understanding is that they, they will not do it. And it has to do with the Hyde Amendment, um, you know, which saying that no public funds can be used to provide or support abortion. And so even a, even a, a hospital like St. Luke's takes public money. And so they just will, they could set up a separate clinic that doesn't take any public money to do this and they just won't do it. I just, I feel like there should be some political pressure on these hospitals. Like, why are you not doing this? And I don't see Uh, that happening yet. I, I, and I think too, Wit. I mean, I think there's the issue about whether or not they're allowed to do it and whether some doctors do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I, you know, there are abortions happening at hospitals, maybe not every hospital, maybe not every time. Um, but some doctors have always found a way to mm-hmm. provide abortions at some of these hospitals um, or to make sure that those patients have access to a nearby clinic. Um, you know, and, and, and I mean, you know, so it's, it's really a matter of just being realistic about, you know, wh- why can't people do this out in the open? Why, why do we... Right. Why do we why do we pretend it's not going on? Um, because all that really does is endanger not only patients, but the healthcare providers that are doing this. It doesn't protect them. And of course, now in Georgia, it's, it's, it's going to get even worse. Um, and, you know, when you when you ask that question, too, about whether, you know, people, for example, getting outraged, whether people speak out about abortion is going to change in 2020, whether that's going to affect the election. Um, I have to say very pessimistically, I don't think it will, because at the end of the day in Georgia, um, we are moving in a position to where we are not going to have secure elections. Um, we had an election in 2018 that, in my opinion, was stolen. Um, hey, if it works in Turkey, governor. why not do it in Georgia? Ex- exactly. So, I mean, we're not in a very good position to bear, to flip um, red seats in the state legislature to blue to therefore um, ensure that bans like this never um, are signed into law again. So, I, I mean, whether there could be, for all I know, there could be 65% of people in Georgia who, you know, who are against this abortion ban. It's not going to matter when we show up to the polls if we end up with these machines that, um, are, that are hackable and that where people's votes can be changed. Um, that's how we got in this situation in the first place. Now, I will say this. A couple of days ago, we got a really great piece of news in that a federal judge, Amy Totenberger, um, denied the state's motion to dismiss for a lawsuit that challenges the constitutionality of these electronic voting machines. Um, so what this means is this lawsuit suit is going forward with the goal of getting Georgians um, handmarked paper ballots, which are um, auditable and verifiable. And actually, they happen to be very inexpensive. You know, and listening to this, I wonder, Whitney, when you talk about public hospitals, how much of this is also about the ways that public hospitals might be reflecting or the medical profession in general might be reflecting gendered politics, right? You know, what profession doesn't? And just as in a legislature, you have men talking about um you know, the bodies of people with uteruses in ways that demonstrate that they clearly don't understand how pregnancy actually works, right? And um, in hospitals, you know, are the people in charge men? Um, I wonder, like, I don't actually off the top of my head know the stats about that, but I would assume, yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I would assume that's the case. It's a prestigious money-making profession um, with a high bureaucratic um, pay scale and, and burden 
um, for patients, I would assume that men are running it and that they're getting paid amply to do so, and that then they're likely to be less responsive to these needs. And I'm just I'm interested in the ways that masculinity is affecting this conversation. And so, Lacey, I want to um, ask you about your essay. Um, you wrote an essay for LitHub in response to Rachel Louise Snyder's No Visible Bruises. Uh, your essay was called is masculinity a terrorist ideology? And when I was reading it after reading The Reckonings, I was struck by the very obvious connections between some of your essays, particularly the one called Speak Truth to Power, which I was kind of clinging to in anticipation of this episode because it has these notes of power and optimism in it. Um, Could you read a little bit of Is Masculinity a Terrorist Ideology for us? Sure. Could it be that masculinity itself is a violent ideology? Recently, the American Psychological Association acknowledged the connections between masculine ideology and, quote, a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, a shul of the appearance of weakness, adventure, risk, and violence, end quote. According to this report, masculine ideology demands that men and boys suppress vulnerability and human connection, restrict their emotion to only confidence or aggression, value themselves in terms of their power over others, and accumulate power through intimidation and force. Masculine ideology is linked to homophobia, bullying, sexual assault, and intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence is, as Rachel Louise Snyder points out, a euphemism, much like domestic violence, private violence, and spousal abuse. And these euphemisms fail in important ways for being too heteronormative, too limited, too elusive. And these failures obscure the particular constellations of power and force at work in these relationships. A far more accurate word to describe what these relationships must feel like from the inside, she suggests, is terrorism. Terrorism might seem like the wrong word to use for the violence many people still consider a private matter, given that the legal definition of terrorism remains unclear. The UN remains unable to agree on a single working definition, and that acts of domestic terrorism, especially the terrorism of white men, are not prosecuted as such by the courts. For nearly the last 20 years, our collective memory of terror has largely been informed by the attack against the World Trade Center, and increasingly by images of the horrifying and unforgettable carnage of suicide bombings and mass shootings, both here and abroad. These images horrify us, and their horror makes them persuasive, so much so that most Americans seem ready to accept that the greatest threat to our security is one that comes from an elsewhere, an over there, rather than from from within our own homes. Terrorism, these images tell us, is infrequent, far away, and visible, but in reality, most violence is common, nearby, and hidden. In 2016, for instance, terror attacks claimed the lives of 68 people in the United States. But that same year, more than 1,800 women were murdered by men, and 93% of murdered women were killed by men they knew. That year wasn't unique or unusual in this regard. Again and again, decade after decade, the statistics bear out 
More than half the women killed in this country are murdered by current or former intimate partners, and always the person most likely to be killed by a man with a gun isn't a terrorist or a serial killer or even a burglar. It's himself and his family. Terrorism, if it includes all of this, is a large and unwieldy threat and makes the connection between private hidden acts of violence and public visible ones unmistakable. Adam Lanza, for example, killed his mother in her bed before murdering 20 first graders and five elementary school staff in 2012. Stephen Paddock was well known among casino staff for berating his girlfriend in public before he opened fire on concert goers in the Las Vegas Strip in 2017. James T. Hodgkinson, who shot Representative Steve Scalise and four others at a baseball practice in Washington, D.C., repeatedly abused his daughter and then punched his neighbor in the face when she threatened to call 911. Omar Mateen, who murdered 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016, had years earlier battered his wife and held her hostage, though he was never held criminally accountable for this. Men who are radicalized by masculine ideology terrorize their families, and a man who terrorizes his family is more likely to terrorize strangers. The reality of the terror these men inflict is obscured by the cultural attitude that domestic violence is private, even when it becomes fatal, even when it climbs, claims the lives of an entire family even when there is a clear and unmistakable connection between the intimate terror that happens behind closed doors and the public terror that occurs at a church or a concert or at a border crossing or on a crowded street. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, that is such a striking analysis. Where does the control of women's reproductive rights, these abortion bans, fall in your analysis of the private and public acts of abuse? I mean, I think of them as another form of the terrorism that I'm describing here. At a different point in that essay, I talk about how we think about domestic abuse, um, domestic abuse as, as physical violence. And though it is often also that, it far more often takes the form of coercion and control. And I can't think of anything that's more coercive and terrorizing and controlling than changing the law to force a woman to gestate and give birth to a child she doesn't want to have. One additional thing that I think makes these laws um, or that makes clear is, is the ways that this isn't simply a matter of some kind of like American evangelical equivalent of the Taliban exerting you know, strict patriarchal control over women's bodies. Um, but as you know, Anjali was talking about earlier, it's it's you know these politics are inseparable from the politics of white supremacy, um, and uh, you know because they the this control is 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 um, is not just a gendered one, but is also um, a racial and racist and white supremacist one. Anjali, in your essay, Borderline, which won first place in nonfiction from Prime Number Magazine, you talk about being pregnant for the first time and viewing the image you see on an ultrasound at six weeks as, quote, my baby and not, quote, my embryo or, quote, my pregnancy. And that time frame is close to what Georgia and other states are proposing as the cutoff for allowing an abortion. Could you talk about how that thought lives on, alongside your political convictions about abortion rights? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
Suki, what I tried to do in that essay, among other things, was to address the fact that an individual person's views on when life begins is wholly separate and really irrelevant when it comes to talking about the state's ability to make decisions about an individual's health and their body, um, the state's ability to control a person. Um, I've been pregnant six times. Three of those pregnancies resulted in children. The other three resulted in miscarriages. And they were very devastating to me when I, the moment I found out I got pregnant, I saw them as babies. Um, they were wanted and loved. And um, I was also pregnant at times in my life where I had the immense privilege of being in a position to be able to raise children. Um, but none of this has anything to do with whether I think a state should control a person's body. Um, you know, it's about health. Um, my grandmother had three illegal abortions and she almost died from one of them. Um, and I think the so-called pro-life movement has forced us to keep talking about things like viability or things like when does life begin when that's never actually been the issue here. The issue is about the civil rights of a, a person who can bear children. It's interesting to see the way that myth and tradition and history about women's bodies and the way that men talk about them pervade this discussion. And, and Lacey, the reckonings points all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi and, and Greek myth and Ovid as possible sources for the way that men have come to view themselves as the administrators of women's bodies. So how do you see myths um, or kind of legends or the history of the discussion of women's bodies showing up in headlines and journalism about this now? I mean, I think that the myth that informs these laws or, or perhaps the set of myths that inform these laws um, come from a very particularly American, Southern, white, conservative, evangelical interpretation of the Bible. Um, you know, the idea that God intended the structure of society to be a patriarchal one and that... Um, you know, women in the Bible who fall out of line are evil. If you, you know, take the origin myth, right? You know, Eve, um, you know, her curiosity and, and you know, disobeying the orders that she wasn't supposed to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge um, sort of pre was the precipitating event for the fall of, you know, make, quote, fall of man from Eden, right? Um, or the, you know, it's not necessarily in the Bible, but it's very much in, in everyone's, you know, in the evangelical consciousness is the sort of the woman who preceded her, the mythical woman who preceded her, Lilith, who refused to submit to Adam to lay beneath him during intercourse um, and was then cast out of Eden for it and went on to give birth to a race of monsters beside um, the Dead Sea, I think. Um, and so women continue to be instructed by these myths and traditions that to serve God, they must serve their husbands, and that their bodies exist only to serve the needs of this sort of patriarchal religion. Um, but I think even more than this, um, the most prevailing myth that, that I see in these headlines is that any of this is about the sanctity of life. Um, because, you know, if, if you take Alabama, for example, um, the, you know, Kay Ivey signed this um, legislation into law. And then the very next day, Alabama executed 
um, one of his prisoners on death row. Um, and you know, it, it's, it has nothing to do with the sanctity of life or preservation of life. This is very much just about the sort of, um, you know, white supremacist patriarchal control of women's bodies and their reproduction. It seems to me like there's also something here about justice, a way in which it's being framed as a conversation about, very subtly as a conversation about justice, like if you behave a certain way, then you get what you deserve again. And so that there's a way in which abortion is being framed as some sort of secret get out of jail free card or something that... um, that no one could possibly deserve to have as an option the way that um, pregnancy is, you know, the, the lines of argument are things like, um, well, this is what's meant to be. So destiny, um, you have to believe that what was meant to happen is what has happened. You know, if you have survived sexual assault and become pregnant as a result, um, you know, you have um, to have faith. Um, again, a religious line, you have to have faith that it'll all turn out the way that um, that it's supposed to, or just kind of what did you think would happen if you behaved in this way? So you sinned sure. in some regard, and now your body must face the consequences. And there's this way that this whole conversation is being discussed as though there's something, um, as though pregnancy is, it's it's weirdly being framed in some ways as a punishment, and then in other ways abortion is being framed as just an avoidance of responsibility, which I find to be really bizarre and connected to, I think, what you were saying about um, in The Reckonings when you wrote about Hammurabi, uh, kind of, you know, if if this shall happen, then this shall happen. Right. And I just, yeah, I wonder what you think about that. I mean, I think I think you're definitely right. And, you know, in the, you know, the conservative white evangelical tradition, we have to remember that, like, intercourse outside of wedlock is considered a sin, right? And so if you get pregnant for that, it is at once both a punishment for that sin and also God's will somehow. Like I heard, um, I think one of the people on the floor debating, I don't remember which law, which, which of the states that, you know, the debate was occurring in, but someone was saying that, um, if a child, you know, results from a rape, that that's part of God's will. And that perhaps then the rape is also God's will and that we can't, uh, there shouldn't be an exception for rape um, in those cases because it is God's will that this, you know, however, you know, God choose to work through our bodies, like the the child is the ultimate, you know, goal. And so there's so much like, um, I mean, obviously there's so much hypocrisy in that and so much like talking out of both sides of your mouth um, in, in thinking about whether, um, you know, how the, the bodies of women are, irreducibly sinful, especially um, if they are using them in any way, um, in any kind of autonomous way or with agency. But the bodies of unborn children are always a sort of surface, a blank surface onto which to project all kinds of ideological ideas and goals and ambitions. You know, an an unborn child um, isn't you know, in the, in the in this ideological framework, an unborn child isn't a poor child, or um, you know, a, a a child who's going to grow up and vote you out of office, or anything. It's just a sort of blank service onto which project um, all kinds of um, you know possibility. I guess that 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 the materiality of human bodies. Um, you know, resist that idea of agency uh, reminds me of a section, Anjali, from your essay, Borderline where um, your grandmother, uh, Oma, 
goes mm-hmm. in to have an abortion. The doctor asks her, since she's married, why would she end her pregnancy? And she says, because I am tired. I do not want anymore. In other words, this idea that she doesn't have to, that she has a choice here. I found that to be a really effective and interesting passage. Yeah, I mean, um, so I've been thinking a lot about that essay and my grandmother for a couple of reasons, um, because, you know, she so she had three illegal abortions and it was one of them that she was having where she um, a midwife came to the house, performed the procedure and she started hemorrhaging and she was rushed to the hospital. And she was actually very, very lucky that the doctor that um, treated her in the hospital was willing to um was willing to help her because, um, it, you know, it, it was illegal. Um, so she could have bled to death even in the hospital. Um, but um, it was interesting because I've been thinking a lot lately, obviously, we all have about agency and choice. Um, and yesterday I was in the car with one of my teenage daughters and she asked me, mom, what will happen if this law actually does go into effect and I need an abortion and I can't get one? And um, I had this, this chill that ran along my spine because I was thinking about how little time has really passed where abortion has, in fact, been illegal. I mean, it's always been very inaccessible, but at least it's been legal. And I was thinking about how um, my grandmother um, did not have a legal right to an abortion during her reproductive years. I was born in 1973, a few months after Roe v. Wade became the law of the country. So it's really only been a generation and a half to two years of people in the United States who have had this legal right to an abortion during their reproductive span. Um, And here was my child now who um, is facing the possibility of not being able to legally have the right to an abortion. It reminds me of a book that was the first book that I know that I read about abortion, which was The Cider House Rules by John Irving. I know that's a man writing about this issue. Um, But I thought since one of our core principles here at Fiction Nonfiction is that all the news you read about in your Twitter feed has already been written about somewhere in literature. We've talked about and we've had you on the show because we wanted we thought your writing in particular applied to this issue. But I wonder what texts, be they novels, essays or poems, have been most important and influential to you on the subject of abortion. Um, well, for me, there's just been so many. Um, it's hard to name a few, but um, I uh, I would say one has been Jessica Handler's memoir, Invisible Sisters, mm. which is actually a memoir about the fact that she had two younger sisters who passed away at very young ages for diseases that um, were inheritable and which Jessica would be able, might um might give one of her children should she have them. And so she saw the tremendous amount of pain and suffering her sisters endured. And when she became pregnant, she decided to have an abortion. Um, another one is Britt Bennett's The Mothers, such a huh. beautiful story. We've about had Britt on the show twice. Yeah, how abortion can shape somebody's life. Um, then Susan Ito um, wrote an incredible essay several years ago called The Abortion That Saved My Life. She had preeclampsia two weeks before her son Samuel would have been viable and um, had to um, have an abortion so that she could keep living. Um, and then I would say there's Gwendolyn Brooks's gorgeous poem called Mother, which really highlights the very complicated and fraught feelings that some people experience 
when it comes to unwanted pregnancies and abortions. Um, but yeah, we do have a really rich tradition of literature on the topic. And hopefully, um, as the issue becomes something um, even more frightening in this country, hopefully people will be willing to write these stories. Lacey, how about you? I mean, I think, you know, those are such great examples, but um, I guess the book that, you know, comes to mind is it's more of a handbook. I don't know. I mean, do we consider it? Literature is not. Um, it certainly tells a certain kind of narrative, but, um, you know, the, the, the primary, like our bodies ourselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, oh, yeah. that sort of like classic landmark um, book, which is such, it's kind of interesting for the simple reason that it's been an evolving text all these years, um, you know, and, and began definitely as a sort of like, you know, handbook, I guess, on reproductive health. And, um, but unlike some other literature on the subject, it, it has evolved to address the impact of poverty and race and gender um, identity on, on reproductive care. Um, but because it's so um, evidence-based, I, I really um, I value that. I value that text so much. Um, but also, you know, books um, like The Handmaid's Tale and, um, you know, the book um, uh, the book Pro by Katha Pollitt, who, mm. um, yeah. you know, who has you know, revealed herself to be... Um, a certain kind of feminist, I guess, on Twitter, but but the argument she makes in that book, um, you know, is a is a compelling one, you know, and it, and she talks a lot about how there's, um, you know, the sort of culture of shame around abortion, um, but also how it is not just a legal right, but a moral one um, to be able to um, to secure one that it's a, a decision to make with one's healthcare provider. Um, between, between, you know, it's a decision between a woman and her doctor, um, that it's a medical procedure, that it's a healthcare procedure. It's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, the, the ground on which to fight these moral battles. Speaking of that culture of shame idea, I wanted to talk about a, a story that I, is about abortion that I think is, should not be taught anymore, and that has been taught for generations, which is Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants which I feel like in the end is a story that I, of course, was taught like so many people are, um, you know, that that addresses this issue in all the wrong ways. And that is about, like, it's framed such that the guy who's telling the girl in the story to get an abortion or that he wants to get an abortion is framed as the bad guy. And the girl who's having these moral qualms is framed as the good person. And I feel like there's something so screwed up about the way that he sets that story up that it, it has in some ways, I think, infected the way that we think about this uh, issue because so many people have read and studied that story. Do you guys agree with that? What is your read on that story? I will say that the first time I read the story was quite a long time ago. Um, and I had never heard of the term grooming before, which is what a sexual abuser does to their victim right. to engage in sexual assault. But I remember thinking, wow, this, you know, this is this to me, it, it, the dialogue sounds like grooming. It's a deeply um, perverse story that's it, it been presented really as a classic for years. Yeah. It's got right. to stop. Do you trust me. I'm only thinking of you. Here's how I feel, but you make the decision, but here's how I feel. Um, it's really very grotesque and perverted. And, um, and the, you know, the, the woman character is infantilized. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I don't know people who are still teaching this story. I'm sure it's still taught, but, um, yeah, it's something that we need to sort of eject from our syllabi. It is sure. definitely still taught because I have students in the graduate level who have all read that. They, they all know that story, oh. right? You know, this the dialogue in, in that story reminds me a lot of, um, there was a chart floating around on Twitter the other day about the ways that the various, um, you know, uh, digital voice assistants like Siri and Alexa oh, yeah, are, yeah. are programmed to respond to sexual harassment. Did you see this? No. And, you know, so for, so for instance, if you call Siri a slut, one of her programmed responses is to say, I would blush if I could. And so to oh, me, my God. Yeah. To me, wow. that says more, I think, about the fantasies of the male programmers than it says anything about reality or about women. And I think that this Hemingway story similarly says more about the fantasies of Hemingway than it says about anything else. Mm. It seems to me like there is an antiquated way in which, in the same way that, you know, sort of an old school conservative approach to writing about race would perhaps deploy race um, or race-marked persons in contrast to whiteness almost purely as a plot device. So in a lot of literature, perhaps one would see abortion appear rather than as a normal part of life, um, purely as a plot device that would advance the story, and thereby it would almost automatically probably turn out badly. I mean, I think about, you know, me telling my students to do terrible things to their characters. So then, for example, if an abortion appears in a story, doesn't that make it more likely that it'll go awry? Um, and then when I think about it in that way, you know, like when I, you know, you would have a character in a story who who wasn't white and someone might say to you, but why are they not white? Like, what's their motivation? <laughs> Which was kind of this, this crazy making thing. When I was thinking about, um, you know, Whit mentioned the Cider House rules, and I was thinking about Beloved is a story that was adjacent to this in some way. And then my friend who I was talking to about Minnesota Planned Parenthood mentioned Revolutionary Road. And I don't know how this didn't occur to me, but I think the first abortion narrative I saw was actually Dirty Dancing. And when I was a kid, I had no idea that it was an abortion narrative. I just didn't know what was happening at that part. And it's a it's a story in which, you know, a rich boy gets a, a working class girl pregnant, avoids responsibility, a working class boy helps the, the young woman to get, um, you know, kind of a backroom abortion that then goes horribly awry. And then um, I should have spoiler alerted Dirty Dancing for like 1% of America. That hasn't seen it yet. Um, and then, you know, baby's father, who is this um, upper class doctor, helps her, but then assumes that the working class boy is responsible and judges him for it. And actually, I think that maybe as first exposures to abortion narratives go, maybe that was actually pretty good. What do you yeah. guys think? <laughs> I mean, I absolutely think so. And honestly, when you asked me about literature that dealt with abortion, my first thought was Dirty Dancing. However, I was like, no, let me think of some books. <laughs> ah, movies count. <laughs> we, we, we should have included that. that. <laughs> um, it's a screenplay, yeah, that's literature. You know, and, and thinking about, because there's also this sort of moment, you know, the other, there's a, a another thing that's running under that, which is that doesn't baby ask her father for money to help pay for this abortion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then it, and it goes horribly wrong. And then when he figures out what the money was supposed to be for, he not like he shames his daughter. He shames this working class boy who he assumes he is shame. You know, he shames this other woman that there's so much like sort of shame around um, everyone's bodies and, you know, what, what is essentially just, you know, being sexual people, um, you know, who, and, and making, and making choices, you know, but, but, um, but, you know, at that time, not at the time that the movie was made, but the, the sort of historical time that the film was set, right. That abortion was not legal, right. It was a sort of backroom, um, kind of illegal procedure that had gone wrong as you point out. Right. Mm. I mean, but that, very, it's, it's very relevant to today because, you know, in, in the movie, right, the father is is more ashamed of the fact that he's learned that his daughter is sleeping around than he is about the fact that this, you know, that, that we live in a society where this this woman had to get a very dangerous abortion in order to end her pregnancy. And that, even though, um, you know, I think it takes, when does it take place in the 60s, the movie? Um that attitude is actually still relevant today. The yeah. fact that 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 someone would some the fact that someone would have um, sex out of marriage is still so pronounced today. Um, you know, our, our 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 attitudes, especially the attitudes that you referenced, um, Lacey, the the sort of the white, the evangelical white supremacist sort of attitudes. You know, they've not changed at all. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to see that movie when it came out. <laughs> oh, me neither. Uh, I, I watched it a... at a sleep at a sleepover. <laughs> at my girlfriend, <laughs> actually, it yeah, was on like it was on pretty heavy rotation. No, mm. I was. I was not allowed to see that movie. But I, so I will put in a good word here for the John Irving novel, which I understand. Like it's it's told from a male point of view, but again, male need men need to engage with this subject as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought that um, I really remember. The early passages of the novel, which are about Wilbur Larch um, first becoming somebody who performs abortions, and the and he's moved to it by the dangers of the illegal abortions that people that women he's encountering are having, and the the graphic detail of how those were written about in, in Irving's work really impressed me, and I think were important and changed me sort of morally on this issue. When I was very young, I mean, this book came out in '85, I didn't you know know anything about the issue, um, but it. I, I give him credit for uh, those scenes and the, 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 that, that novel. So, I mean, I think part of what we're talking about here is how normal abortion is. And I'm wondering how the language of journalists and legislators has failed on the subject of abortion. I was mentioning earlier that article on the cut about heartbeat bills. And I was furious yesterday after reading that Minnesota bill that kept referring to the female, which is a noun I find totally odious. Do you have pet peeves as you're reading about this where you're like, this is inaccurate or this is a problematic framing? I also hate any reference to a woman as a female. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's to me, it's just a sort of like um, clear tell um, of, you know, someone's misogyny that if they, you know, and I, and I always think like the prime example of that is like, you know, Quark on Deep Space Nine was <laughs> always talking about females, right? And, and you know, to see this in the legislation, <laughs> you know, it does sort of call up this idea of all these quarks writing it. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the fact is, you know, there are all these, the, you know, the, the language around um, these bills, you know, and that people are, 
you know, fussing over these exceptions for rape or incest, um, which to me very much just strikes me as like pandering because, um, as we know, that is um, with a, with a lot of these lawmakers, um, that that's impossible to prove. Like it's not enough to say. Um, you know, we saw this during Kavanaugh's you know confirmation hearing just you know in September that you know it's not enough to say I was raped. Um, it won't be enough to say you know to file a police report um, because you know I think we've seen the ways in which that's impossible and and a woman's own sort of story about. Um, her experience doesn't count as evidence in the same way as a sort of like validation from a man. Um, but ultimately, it is still a legal right um, to choose to have an abortion for whatever reason. And it doesn't actually matter what your reason is, you know. It doesn't, it shouldn't matter if you were raped or um, if it was a product of incest or you just don't want to have a child right now. Like you have a legal right to have an abortion and your reasoning for doing so um, really, really shouldn't matter. And I really think it's important for us as writers and journalists to continue to insist on this, that it is our, <laughs> our legal right to choose to have an abortion for whatever reason, you know, we want. And I, I will add to that um, that one of the big downfalls when we talk about abortion is journalism's continued obsession with telling both sides of the story. Yeah. Um, in 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 believing that by telling two sides of the story that they are in fact doing non-biased or unbiased reporting. And I, 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 am, I, I have to be in a certain mood and a certain state of mind to actually read articles about abortion, for example, because I just know that there is going to be such problematic language in the pieces. Um, you know, I, the, the conservatives, um, extremists, have had for decades now the upper hand in the language that they've been using um, to describe abortion, like pro-life, what we mentioned earlier, when it's really pro-forced birth, um, you know, partial birth abortions were—it was never a, even a medical term, right? It was decided by a conservative lawmaker decades ago that this was going to be what he calls um, abortion after the twenty-week mark. Um, and so, what happens is, is that we have these articles that you know afford conservatives a substantial amount of space to use their language to talk about their position when it comes to abortion. And what that does is, is it validates it. It gives it a degree of credibility, even if they then switch to sort of the quote, other side of the issue, which is that abortion should be legal and accessible. Um, and, and, and this is causing tremendous amounts of damage because um, what this means is, is that the resistance is having to spend so much time in a defensive stature by, um, you know, by by proving that that the language is wrong first before even asserting <laughs> what should be done. Um, and and journalists are really they're really culpable, and and editors too. I mean, really, the editors should not be letting this fly at, at all. I mean, this is. Forced birth, that's all it is, is forcing women to endure pregnancy and childbirth, which are very dangerous for women um, in this country. And it's, it's forcing them to endure that, um, let, along, let, let alone um, 
trying to raise a child that you never even wanted. The majority of people believe that abortion should be legal. So even using the word debate in this discourse is problematic to me. Right. And and also the way that these sort of untruths get circulated in the interest, I don't know, of, I'm not sure what, I guess in trying to, as you say, sort of both sides it, but like, you know, the sort of thing that the president keeps repeating about, um, at rallies, about women and doctors conspiring to execute infants, right, who have been mm-hmm. born, right? And he said this now multiple times that like, um, you know, the, 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 and, and I, I guess he's thinks that he's talking about, I don't know what he thinks he's talking about, but it's just a lie. And that it keeps getting repeated by journalists covering him, that he is saying this lie, but there's a reluctance to call him a liar, mm-hmm. ends up perpetuating the idea, I think, that, that this is a thing that happens when <laughs> it is not, it is so clearly not a thing that happened, that, you know, a woman gives birth to a healthy baby, and then she and the doctor figure out how to murder it. That's not, it's just not a, a real thing at all. That's a thing that he has made up in his mind and, and is repeating at rallies. To add one last idea to this discussion of the propaganda of abortion, uh, around abortion from the quote-unquote pro-life movement, which is itself a propaganda word. I, I do want to just mention, we'll link to it in the show notes. There is an article at Politico that talks about how abortion... The issue of abortion was really just a way of um, creating support for conservative causes uh, when they didn't feel like talking about what they really wanted to talk about, which was being pro-segregation. Yes. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think it's important to also acknowledge the origin of the abortion, quote-unquote, issue in a way of rallying conservative support around an issue that was not really the issue, which was let's be white supremacists, let's disenfranchise people of color. Yes. So, yeah, and I want to, I want to go back to, I mentioned earlier that I was clinging to a couple of passages in one of Lacey's essays and thinking about what it is that we can say about this, what we can say in response to this. And this is happening on Twitter and elsewhere. You know, there was a huge abortion rights rally here. Um, And Lacey, you wrote in um, Speak Truth to Power about, you know, men having all this collective power. And then you you note, which I really appreciated reading, that women do too. And that, um, you know, people are talking about this. And hopefully there is, I know that we've talked about some pessimistic points of view here too, but hopefully that there there is actually a way for us to mobilize and, and move forward on um, defending this right that we do have and that is, as you both pointed out, settled law. Uh, thank you so much, both of you, for being on the show. It's really uh, a treat to talk to you about your work and about the news and to hear your analysis of it. Uh, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much for this having- This has been wonderful. Yes, thank you. This has been great. Thank you both. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. A quick note, after we recorded this, news broke that health officials in Missouri had declined to renew the license of Planned Parenthood's clinic in St. Louis, the last remaining clinic in Missouri to provide abortions, pending an interview with physicians and trainees there. We provided a link to that story from The Guardian in our show notes. Also, Louisiana voted to ban abortion after six weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. 
where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. And you can listen to us on the LitHub Radio player on the website's front page. Thanks to Just Emily C., C. Kelly Go, and Kate88Books for graciously heeding our call and posting reviews on iTunes. Sugi and I are super grateful. I would also like to say that those three generous iTunes reviewers represent 0.000025% of the people who listened to the Fiction Nonfiction podcast in the past month. So, if 120 more of you did this, we would be at 0.1% of the past month's listeners. Is that too much to ask? Just go to iTunes, type in fiction slash non slash fiction, and select ratings and reviews. Just Emily C. and the others wrote something, which is awesome, but you don't have to. Simply click on a number of stars. Five. How hard is this? Also, I don't want to presume gender by name, so I apologize if I'm getting something wrong here, but guys, seriously, do Emily, Kelly, and Kate have to do everything? We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. Happy reading.